We are in the midst of a series of messages that will address the question on the hearts and minds of many as we uh, head into a new millennium, and that is the question, what does the future hold? We are living in a unique period of human history, as uh, this year brings with it uh, not only the end of a decade and also the uh, rare closing of a century, but we're also going to be heading into a new millennium. And as a result, many have uh, predicted that we are somehow or another living at the end of time or that uh, the world is somehow or another coming to an end. And it is uh, for this reason that we must exercise discernment, sound judgment, and insight as we uh, consider the future. As you're probably aware, opinions vary and uh, speculation runs rampant, often causing fear and confusion. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, who can we turn to or where can we go that can give us definitive answers as far as the questions that we have regarding the future? And I think it becomes quite clear that uh, God knows the future, um, that God in invented time for his sake, for our purposes as well, and that he knows the beginning from the end. And as far as God is concerned, outside of the dimension of time, he knows the beginning from the end. And therefore, when he gives us the, uh, the ending of how it all turns out, it becomes very important that we recognize and understand that he has a very clear vantage point and a very clear perspective, one that we do not have as human beings and man is limited as to what we can see as far as the future is concerned. So the best place to turn is to God and to his word because God is not a God of fear and confusion, but he is a God of purpose and he is a God of order. Now recently we considered the question, when will Jesus return? There's much speculation today as Christians begin to be believe because of the escalation of things going on around the world that, uh, that the time of the Lord's coming is near. And uh, as we are looking at that question and as we consider the answers that the Bible gives us, one of the things that became very clear was that there would be an increase in what's called religious apostasy. And one of the signs that God gives us to look at as far as the nearing of the return of Christ is that of an acceleration or an increase in religious apostasy. Now, as a sheer definition, apostasy means to depart or to fall away from. And so what we're talking about when we talk about religious apostasy or apostasy as defined in the Bible is a departure or a falling away from the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. As the day of Jesus' return draws near, this departure will be at an unprecedented level. And it's very clear from the word of God that all of us are, are subject or suspect to being deceived by this particular danger. Even the brightest among us are in some danger, and some of us, uh, for those who doubt that, um, that we are in danger or believe that somehow or another human beings are too intelligent to be led astray or deceived, I've got a couple of true stories to share with you. First one took place in San Francisco, and a man wanting to rob a downtown Bank of America walked into the branch and wrote the words, This is I-Z, a stick-up, S-T-I-K-K-U-P. Put all your Mooney in the bag, uh, M-U-N-Y. Now, while standing in line waiting to give his note to the teller, he began to worry that someone had seen him write the note and might call the police before it even reached the teller window. So he left the Bank of America, crossed the street, and went into the Wells Fargo. After waiting a few minutes in line, he handed the note to the Wells Fargo teller. She read it and surmising that from the spelling errors, he wasn't the brightest light in the harbor, <laughs> told him she could not accept his stick-up note because it was written on a Bank of America deposit slip. <laughs> and that he would have to fill out one of their own or go back across the street to the Bank of America. Looking somewhat defeated, he went back across the street, and while he waited in line at the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo teller called the police, and they arrested him a short time later. (laughs) 
Dennis Newton was on trial for armed robbery in Oklahoma City for a convenience store. In a district court, he fired his attorney midway through his trial. The assistant district attorney, Larry Jones, said Newton, 47, was doing a fair job of defending himself until the store, until the store manager testified that Newton was the robber. Newton then jumped up, accused the woman of lying, and said, I should have blown your head off. He paused for a moment, then quickly added, if I had been the one that was there. It took the jury 20 minutes to convict him and recommended 30 years in prison. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I'm not that dumb. No, not me, you. You're thinking of yourself that you're not that dumb. Well, then, for those of us who think we're pretty bright, one last one. A Charlotte, North Carolina man, having pur purchased a case of very rare, very expensive cigars, insured them against, among other things, a fire. Within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of cigars and without having made even his first premium payment on the policy, the man filed a claim against the insurance company. In his claim, the man stated that the cigars were lost, quote, in a series of small fires. <clears throat> the insurance company obviously refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in normal fashion. The man sued and won. In delivering, the in delivering the ruling, the judge, <clears throat> agreeing that the claim was frivolous, stated nevertheless that the man held a policy from the company in which it had warranted the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure against fire without defining what it considered to be unacceptable fire and was obligated to pay the claim. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling, paid the man $15,000 for the rare cigars that he lost in fires. Pretty clever, huh? But there's more. <laughs> After the man cashed the check, however, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. <laughs> With his own insurance claim and testimony from the previous case used against him, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and sentenced to 24 months in jail and a $24,000 fine. You got to love that. What's the point? Quite often, we're not as smart as we think. So if God says to beware, to pay attention, to not be deceived, I think we need to listen up. So far, we've examined, as we've looked at this area of religious apostasy, we've seen the development of religious apostasy, apostasy that it began in the early church and has continued to accelerate throughout the centuries. We've seen that there was a description that God gives us, which we've gone into great detail. We also noticed the deception, which is all of these, which you're not going to see because you've already seen them. Now, that leads us to what we began to look at, and that is the deception or the primary methods of deception that are used to draw people away from the truth to follow after a lie. And that's where we'll pick up where we left off. Because as we look at this, God has identified very clearly these message of, methods of deception that are used to lure people away from the truth to the lies so that we can recognize these, be aware of what they are, and not fall victim to these uh, methods of deception. We must never forget that Satan is a great imitator. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he will appear as an angel of light, that he, will, uh, that he uh, also has ministers, and they appear as ministers of righteousness, but they are not. And... Uh, we also know that he has been hard at work deceiving ever since he deceived Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, we're told he deceived Eve, that he has false Christians. We talked about that last week in Matthew 7. If you remember the story that Jesus told that there would be those who would come before him on the day of judgment and say, Lord, but didn't we do all these things in your name? 
Didn't we perform great miracles? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus looked at him and said, You know what? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. The Bible goes on to tell us, even Jesus himself illustrated the problem of having uh, false teachers and false believers among other believers. He illustrated with the parable the, the wheats and the tares. And that you can't even tell the difference until one day they come and harvest time comes around. Also, we know he spreads a false gospel. In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, we saw that, and even a false righteousness. And one day in the future, as we'll look at in an upcoming session, Satan will present to the world a false Christ. The Bible calls him the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, and many other terms. But the, the reality of it is that he will present to the world a false Christ, one who will not only be against that which Jesus Christ stands for, but he will come alongside and begin to try to imitate the things that Jesus did. And we're going to look at that in an upcoming session. All of which brings us to the first point, and the first point is this. One of the methods of deception that we began to look at last week was that of miraculous signs. Uh, though discussed in great detail, I think it's important that we look at and are reminded that the false or counterfeit Christ who will come in the future, it will come, the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, in all power and signs and lying wonders. This is how he will deceive multitudes uh, which still seek signs. We, we must be careful, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20 again. As we look at something, we must be careful not to be misled by such miracles. For even though these miracles are real they can still be that what God says are lying wonders. Lying wonders. They're designed to draw us away from the truth instead of towards the truth. Now the question that's been asked throughout human history is this. What is truth? What is truth? If you remember Pilate said the same to Jesus. What is truth? And God very clearly tells us in the, in the, the book of John chapter 17, he tells us that God's word is truth. That the word of God is truth and the expression of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is also truth. Jesus himself said that he summarized or summed up all that is true when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes unto the Father but through me. In John 1.14 we read, And the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is to the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus Christ embodied the truth of God. He is truth. The question we must ask as we witness these so-called miracles that take place around us are twofold. Number one, that is, what is the message that's being proclaimed through this particular miraculous event? And number two, what character is being displayed by the so-called miracle worker? Those are questions that we have to ask and use it against the backdrop or the standard that God gives us in his word. The purpose of God's miracles was always and continues to be to lead men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why if you've got the Gospel of John open, John chapter 20, I want to show you an example of uh, two things. Number one, of a person who sought a sign, and number two, of the answer that he got when it came down to speaking of this sign. It says in John chapter 20, verse 24, Thomas, who was not in the room at the time that Jesus appeared to the other disciples following the resurrection, but Thomas said to them, he called by twelve, Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying in verse 25 to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, he said to them Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What did he want? He wanted, as so many of us do in our world today, he wanted some type of sign. 
He wanted, God, if you're there, show me. I mean, how many of you, in the honesty of your heart, without raising your hand, how many of you have ever said to God, God, if you are real, and if you are there, then just show me a sign. Show me a sign. And usually it's what you want to take place in your life. God, if you'll do this for me, and this is the way I want, this is the sign that I want, actually. If you will do this for me, then I will believe that you're there. Show me a sign. Not just any sign, but the one that I tell you to show me. If you can do this, then I'll believe that you're there. And that's basically what Thomas was saying. He's saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to believe it until I see him myself. Now, after eight days, after eight days, again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with him this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, How'd you like to be Thomas right about then? <laughs> then he called Thomas out of the group. Hey, Thomas, reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He goes on and says, Many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you believing, you may have life in his name. You notice what he said? Remember the story of the centurion soldier who came to Jesus and his daughter was very ill? And he said, Lord, if you would come back with me, I know that you can do miracles. I know that you'll be able to heal her. And Jesus said uh, he was going to go with them. But the centurion soldier said to him, Lord, you don't have to go at all. If you just say the words, I know that she'll be healed. Because I'm not even worthy that you would come into my house. If you speak only the words, I know that she will be healed. And Jesus looked around at the group that was there specifically and said, you know what? No greater faith is there among all of Israel than the faith of this man who understood what it meant to be under authority. And as a centurion soldier, he realized that if he told his soldier to go do something, that they would just go and do it. And he didn't have to follow up to see if it was done because they understood authority. And so here was a man understanding authority saying to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. You can just say the word from here and she'll be healed. And you know what? And he believed them. And he turned and went his way. When he got home, and as the account of what took place at home at that particular time, his servants told him, at a specific time, she was healed immediately. And it was at the exact same time that Jesus spoke the word and that she was healed. He turned and he walked and he went back to his house. Why? Because when the Lord said something, he believed what he said. See, here's where, this is where we've got to be, this is where, to where we've got to get in our life today, and that is this. If I don't need a sign... I don't know if you do. I don't need a sign. And the reason I don't need a sign is because God's word is good enough for me. See, if God says it, I believe it. And in his word, he also gives us the greatest sign that man ever had, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. The world celebrates the resurrection of Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection isn't true, then everything we believe is a lie. But if you can disprove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we'll listen to what you have to say. And if what you say is true, then the Christian faith is worthless. And that's what happened in the early church. They tried to disprove the resurrection. They failed miserably, but they tried nonetheless. The point is this. What sign does God need to demonstrate in your life that he is indeed trustworthy? The greatest sign to man is the resurrection of Christ. The greatest thing God's ever given us is the word of God that encapsulates all of his truth. If God says it, I believe it. I don't need any more signs. 
Even though when things happen in my life that I don't always understand, I, Lord, I'm confused right about now. I don't understand what you're doing, but you know what? I'll still trust you. As we went through the book of Daniel, we learned the same thing, that Daniel's friends, as they, as they would not worship the idol that was made and they were about to be cast into the fiery furnace, they said this to Nebuchadnezzar. You know what? Hey, as far as we're concerned, we will continue to believe in God. And if you want to throw us in the fire and God chooses to slay us, though he slay us, we still believe in him. We'll still trust him because he knows what's best. We have got to get to that point in our life where we no longer seek signs because the signs that the world seeks today will not be signs that lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. They will be signs that lead them to lies and falsehoods and deception and they will lead them away from the truth of the gospel. That is why miraculous signs are so dangerous. What other methods uh, of deception does God want us to become aware of? The second thing was this. The method is persuasive speech. The first thing that comes to mind is a smooth talker. You know, the person who can sell ice makers to Eskimos and snowblowers to people living in Palm Springs. You know, that type of persuasiveness is characteristic of false teachers. And of false teachers, God has this to say. In Jude 16, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. Colossians 2, 3, and 4, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments to the contrary. An example of such a persuasive argument, if you've got your Bibles, turn ahead to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is an example of an early persuasive argument that was introduced to the early church to lead people away from the truth. Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. It says, You have been severed from Christ. You have been seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now to give you a little explanation of what's going on here, what happened was the gospel was very simple. And the gospel message, the great news is this, that God loved this world that this world was separated from God because of sin, that God provided the remedy to, to, to reconcile God to man, and that he sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die for our sins. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead, exactly as the scriptures proclaimed. And because of that, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel message is by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that none of us would be able to boast. Well, immediately was introduced into the early church was the heresy that would have them depart from the truth of the gospel, and that is this, that, you know what? No, it's not just faith in Christ that makes you right with God or saves you from God's judgment. It's also circumcision, which was part of the law, and what they were struggling with was, hey, you know what? Not only do you put your faith and trust in Christ, but you also have to be circumcised to be right with God. And so what was going on here was a struggle between trying to maintain the law, which was a tutor that led them to Christ. The purpose of God's law, and we'll get into this in a moment, the purpose of God's law, or all of his commandments and his laws, was to make people realize that there's no way in the world that we can ever keep them. 
not just the Ten Commandments, but all of God's laws. There is no way in the world that any of us can stand before God and say, I kept all of your laws and I'm faultless before you. The purpose of God's laws was to show man that there is no way we could ever keep them. It is a tutor that would lead us to Jesus Christ. The teacher that would take us to Christ, meaning that, you know what, God, I can't... Thou shalt not lie, are you kidding me? I mean, I, I, okay, but, oh, it's a white lie. A white lie, dark one, purple one, pink one. A lie is a lie. And so we go, oh, well, wait a minute. But, well, okay, well, let's just say you don't have that problem. What, other, what problem do you have? Honor your father and your mother? I got some young people here. You're busted. <laughs> Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy. Oh, you know what? Hey, I always do that. You're busted, too. You know, I mean, what do we got to do? Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's goods. Man, you've seen that nice car that your neighbor's got or something else that they've got or the, or, or the, the wife that he has. That's another one. And you go, oh, all right. So what's the point? The point is we're guilty. The point is we're, we're busted. And so the law was meant to bring us to Christ, and Christ is our only hope because there's nothing in us that's good, and we're not going to get to heaven on our own. And so now what happened was they shared the gospel with these people. They, they embraced that truth, but then they started adding something to it. And you notice what he said. He said in verse 7, man, you were doing so good. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Why did you start to go in this other direction? Now notice in verse 8, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Notice that? This persuasive argument that now not only do you have to trust in Christ, but you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the law, you need to continue to offer sacrifices, you need to continue to do things so that you'll be right with God. Whose persuasive argument was this that you now began to believe it? And what he says in verse, 10, verse 9 is very important, and that is this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And his point is simple. When we start to compromise the truth of the sound doctrines of the Christian faith, it throws everything out. When we start to compromise that it's by, by grace through faith alone that we're made right with God, and we begin to add our own list of things, then we throw out everything that God's done for us. And that's exactly what he said. You've been severed from Christ. If you want to follow the law, you need to keep all of the law, it says in verse 3. He goes on and says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, no other view than the truth, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Did you notice what he said? Whoever came to you and started teaching you this nonsense, God will judge them one day for leading you astray. You need to go back to the truth of the Word of God. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we see characteristics of these false teachers which are important for us so that we can recognize who they are and call them out for being exactly that. People who profess to know Christ but are false in what they have to say. 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. The nation of Israel was constantly being led astray by false prophets. Elijah had to contend with the prophets of Baal, but they promoted a pagan religion. The most dangerous prophets were the false prophets that were Jews. They did the most damage because when they arose among the people, they professed to be speaking and representing God. 
and they were the most dangerous. The false prophets introduced false religion and therefore were easy to recognize. The dangerous ones were the prophets who arose among the people and introduced what they claimed to be truth and there was just enough of it to confuse people who were not discerning and who were not using good judgment as they searched the scriptures to see what, what they had to say whether it was true or false. We need to recognize and understand it because what he's saying is as a comparison it says just as there were false prophets among the nation of Israel there will be false teachers among the church of Jesus Christ. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Notice what he says. They will be people who will come up among our, uh, from among our mists. They will be people who profess to be Christians. They will be people who profess to hold fast to the word of God. They will be people who say that they stand firm on the truth of God's word. But they will be people who also are, sheep, uh, are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's important that we recognize them for who they are. He's saying, be careful, I'm warning you not to listen to what they have to say. It's not a very pretty picture, and if you read the epistle of Jude, you'll also see that use a similar language. The problem with them is they knew the truth of God's word, and yet they also began to teach that was false alongside of it. Notice their, message, uh, their method of gaining acceptance in verse uh, 1. It says they are secretive in their methods. They aren't up front. They don't tell you what their agenda is. It's secretive. They may give the impression they believe in the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, but they don't. They slowly introduce heresy or false doctrine. They lay it aside alongside the truth. They do it a little here, a little there, and slowly they erode the truth, and they throw out the truth, and then all you have left is the falsehood. That is their methodology that they use. And it's important also to recognize what the definition, according to the Bible, is of a false teacher. Listen carefully. A false teacher is one who knows the truth but deliberately lies for some purpose. It is either for some selfish reason or to please people or for money. And there are many people in the world today who preach and say what people want them to say instead of that which they know to be truth. Let me give you a personal illustration of this and take it for what it's worth. The first time I ever struggled with this whole problem right here of, of teaching truth was when we first had our first Rams Bible studies. That was the first time that I was teaching a Bible study. And in fact, it was here. And at that time, that wall wasn't there. And there was, a, there was a classroom over there. And we were meeting here. And we had a lot of people that were coming for the first time. And we were going through a book study. And we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 deal with sexual immorality. And so we're sitting there. And I've got all these people that are here for the first time. And I know too much about what's going on in their personal lives. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading this passage going, oh boy. Now that's what I'm saying to myself. I said, this is going to be fun tonight. And I was struggling. And I was struggling with, well, how can you say it in a loving way and yet, and yet not be so condemning? And you can't. That was my conclusion. There's just no way you can. And so basically it's like, okay, we got guys who are uh, cheating on their wives. We got guys who are li living with their girlfriends. We got guys who are having sex every place they go on the road. I mean, we have a really interesting group of guys that were present that night. And, uh, and so here it is, <clears throat> going through 1 Corinthians 6, talking about sexual immorality, talking about 1 Corinthians 7, hey, because of immorality, you've got to define it, explain what it means. All sex outside of marriage is wrong. The looks were incredibly interesting. What do you mean by that? And what's so funny is it's like President Clinton, he, you know, he doesn't have a, just a lock on that whole line of uh, questions. I mean, this has been going on since the very beginning. Uh, what do you mean by all sex outside of marriage? 
What do you mean by outside of marriage? What do you mean by wrong? You know, can you define wrong for me? And it's like, so we're going through this, and I'm struggling, and, and I'm realizing that, you know, this is really the test, isn't it? Are we going to be true to the Word of God, or are we here to please people? Are we here to please God and uphold His truth? Are we going to compromise it and water it down so that no one gets offended? And what was fascinating about it is, is as you preach the truth, the Word of God goes out because it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And you know what? And I don't even know what's going on or the extent of what's going on in the lives of all the people there or in your lives, and nor do I care because i got enough stuff going on in my own life. But see, here's the deal. As, as, you, as you teach the Word of God, God's Word goes out because it's living and active, and it's nailing these guys right where they sit, just like it nails all of us right where we are. And so I'm seeing a, a guy who ends up becoming one of my best friends. He's sitting in his chair, and he's just his sweats just pouring off him. You ever see the movie Broadcast News? When the guy, the, the, the broadcaster's sitting there, and he wants to be a broadcaster, and he gets his first break, and the lights are on him, and he's just sweating like a fountain, man. This guy's just, there's like water squirting out of everywhere his ears. Every time they keep trying to put makeup on him, it's turning into mud. And it's like, you know, and, and this guy's sitting there, and he's just sweating like crazy. Finally, at the end of all of it, I hear these, and they get up and they're going, man, I gotta get out of here. So what's the matter? I'm telling you right now, this place is gonna get hit by lightning. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> and so, so you know, I just I say, oh, go ahead, we'll give you a head start. <laughs> you go ahead. You head out the parking lot first. But 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 the reason I bring that up is is very simple, and that's this: if we are here to please men, then we will water down God's truth, and that's what false teachers are here to do. And if we are here for some type of advantage on our own, then we will water down God's truth as well. See, because what would happen is this. You run the risk when you teach the truth of God's word that you're going to have an audience that doesn't want to receive it. And I knew the risk was going to be this. You know what? We don't want this guy coming back and teaching us anymore. We want somebody who will make us feel good about ourselves. Now, professional athletes are no different than the rest of us. Because you know what? We all want to hear things that make us feel good about ourselves. But unfortunately, there are times where we don't need to hear things that will make us feel good about ourselves. There are times where we need to hear the truth so we can deal with it and do what is right. I don't want people around me that are just going to tell me what they think I want to hear. I want people around me who will tell me what God wants me to know from the Word of God. False teachers won't do that. And the reason they won't do that is because they've got something uh, that they're afraid they're going to lose. They may lose that position. They, they can't go around telling people, I'm this or I'm that. They may lose, and here's where the interesting thing is when it comes to that particular setting, they may lose the money that they're asking these guys to give them to support the ministry that they're in. And that is a tragedy. Because what happens is this. Hey, you know what? I can't say what God wants me to say to you because I'm afraid that you're going to start stop giving money to me and I'm beginning to get very comfortable living on the money that you're giving and so therefore I don't have a choice but to water it down because I can't risk offending you. God help us when we got men in the pulpit who are more concerned about pleasing people than pleasing God, who are more concerned about what they may lose as far as their job is concerned if they're dedicated to preaching the truth. Because here's my take on this. If you don't want to hear the truth, I don't care because I'm compelled to teach it. And God will lead me somewhere to a group of people that want to hear the truth. And if I get people to start coming to me saying, can you water it down and soften it a little bit? Then I'll say, basically, if there's enough of you to ask me that, then I think it's time for me to go somewhere else. But if it's just one or two of you, the answer to you is, <laughs> get serious. 
See, false teachers are those who tell people what they want to hear for whatever the purpose it is. Now, they're not to be confused with those who teach doctrine in ignorance. For example, we saw uh, Apollos who was teaching doctrine in ignorance because when they were confronted, when he was confronted by the truth and the word of God, you remember the story, you can read it in uh, Acts chapter 18, but when he was teaching that what was wrong and was confronted by the truth and shown in scripture why what he was teaching was wrong, you know what he did? He confessed it. I agree. I'm doing the wrong thing. I, I repent from it. I turn, and I turn to the truth that God's word has just taught me, and I'm willing to repent, turn from it, embrace the truth, and begin to teach that. There's a difference between a false teacher who knows the truth and deliberately waters it down for whatever reason, and one who te- teaches, and it turns out what he's teaching is wrong, but he has shown that he's wrong, and he embraces the truth. And then there's one other teacher that's really fascinating, and in Philippians chapter 1, we read about the teacher who preaches Christ... But he does it not because he loves the Lord, but because he wants something in his own, uh, in his own pocket or he teaches, he teaches it for his own reasons, which is for the love of money. Now, what's fascinating about that is, as wrong as the motive is, Paul said this, nonetheless, Christ, Christ is preached. And see, and that's what we have to do. We have to identify whether God's word is being taught regardless of the motive of the person who's teaching it. And what Paul was trying to get across to us is, hey, it's not so important to judge the motives of the teacher as much as it is to judge the message that he is presenting. That's the important thing. So that's what we need to look at. False teachers are extremely dangerous because they know what they're doing. They're manipulative and they're even more dangerous when it comes to a society that begins to embrace those. Think how dangerous false teachers are in our society today. A society that knows when people lie, know when they're lied to, and yet continue to embrace those people anyway. Oh, well, next time you won't be lying. What kind of credibility is that? What kind of character reference is that? When we as a society begin to embrace leaders who openly lie and continue to lie, then we are just as guilty and subject to whatever lie comes down the road. And when you have a a teacher, a false teacher, who professes to, to teach you the truth, you catch him in the lie, and he doesn't repent, and he doesn't change his ways and continues to do it, then you're just as guilty for sitting and continuing to listen to it. We need to recognize and understand that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, it says that uh, many will follow their sensuality. In verse 2, because of them, the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit with false words. We said that false words are plastic words. They can be molded any way that they want to mold them. I'm sure you've got plastic stuff around your house. It comes in buckets. It comes in whatever. I mean, plastic can be molded into anything. And that's the same. It's true with these false teachers. They mold their words into anything that they want to say and anything that you want to hear. And it will go down through it and look at it. Satan is a liar and his ministers or false teachers are liars. You know, they use the Bible not to enlighten but to deceive people. And Satan's been doing that from the very beginning. Notice how the pattern of deceit is this. You remember Satan goes up to Adam and he says, Surely God did not say. Now what was he doing? He was bringing God's word into question. Surely God did not say. Immediately we begin to question God's word. God couldn't have meant that. And in fact, no, he didn't mean that. This is what he meant. Here's the pattern. Question God's word, then deny that it's true, and then substitute a lie. It's the way it always is. Question God's word. Surely God's word doesn't say that. It can't say that. Because if it says that, then I'm wrong and I would have to change. I would have to ask God to forgive me. I would have to repent and turn from it. And I would have to live differently. So surely they can't be wrong because I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Then it goes to the next step. So I'm going to deny that it's wrong. That's not wrong. That's, what it, that, that's not what it meant. It must be taken out of context. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to substitute what I wanted to say. Do we live in a day and age where that's happening or what? 
Surely God's word doesn't say that. It's not comfortable. It's not acceptable. Therefore, it must be different. Question the word of God, then deny it, and then substitute something that's false. That's the methodology, uh, methodology that's used. Don't be misled by persuasive speech or convincing arguments. Now, you're probably wondering at this point, how in the world can false teachers have so many people follow them? Here's the answer. Look at verse 2, 2 Peter. And many will follow what? Their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be unlined. What is he saying? And many, many will follow their sensuality. Here it is. Sensual appeal. They will follow their sensuality. Other, other passages say licentious conduct. Sensuality means no standard of morality. Jude accused the false teachers of turning God's grace into licentiousness, Jude 4. The thought here is that they will be followed by those who are into the sensual rather than the spiritual. These teachers will tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, which is God's truth. You know, and it's, it's kind of like politicians today. Tell people what they want to hear, give them what they want, and if you can't give them what they want, blame it on someone else, and if you'll just do that, you'll always have high public approval ratings. Right? Tell people what they want. Give them what they want. If you can't deliver what they want, then blame it on someone else. And they will always think highly of you and give you a high approval rating. That's the way it works. And that's exactly what false teachers do. False teachers. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Back a few books. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 20. Read these words. Brethren, join in following my example, this is Paul writing, and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Notice that. What he's saying is that there is an example or a pattern that we're supposed to, to emulate as a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a lifestyle that's consistent with a person who has put their faith and trust in Christ. He's saying, listen to me, follow this example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Notice in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I want you to notice the contrast. He says, follow me in the way I live, and that there are many who are saying they're Christians, but you know what? Their lifestyle indicates that they are not. He just calls it like it is. There are people that are living a lifestyle, calling themselves Christians, and what they're doing is wrong before God. Don't mistake that. It says, whose end is destruction. Now notice whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly, earthly things. He's saying, hey, how do we know those who are walking in a way that's wrong before God? Easy, because they're living to please themselves. They're living to please their sensual appetites. And their mind is set not on the things of God, but on the things of this world. He says, for our citizenship, there goes a contrast again, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the contrast, the contrast that's there. God's people are to live in a way that's pleasing to God and to follow in God's teachings. And not to follow in the world's teaching that says basically this, hey, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. God wouldn't have made me this way if, you know, he didn't want me to act upon these urges and these feelings that I have. God wants me to be happy. No, he doesn't. God wants you to be obedient to God. 
He wants you to be obedient. Know why? Because when you're obedient to God, you will have everything in life that you're looking for. And that's peace and joy, contentment. Uh, you'll have a, a, a sense that, you know what, everything's going to be okay because you're doing what's right before God. God does not want us to be happy. God wants us to be obedient, and all the rest comes with the package. And 2 Peter, back again, in verse 2, notice what he says. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 we read these words. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, who barely escape from the, the ones who live in error. It says, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, or by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Notice what he says. These teachers will tell people what they want to hear, say they're offering them the freedom to make choices, but if they're telling them they have the freedom to sin, then they are leading them into further bondage. For me to sit with these guys and say, look, you can have sex with anybody you want outside of marriage as long as you are doing it safely. For you to have sex with anybody outside of marriage if you're single as long as you love that person. As long as you intend to make a commitment to that person. For me to say that would lead them into further bondage and not truth. For me to say, hey, just because your wife or your husband is not meeting your needs and I don't blame you, go ahead out and just sow whatever oats you want to sow. Because you want to hear it because you're guilty and you're doing it. So therefore, you'll like what I say, but I'm not doing you any favors because I'm leading you, leading you into further bondage and I'm leading you away from God instead of toward God. We don't do anybody any good when we teach them that they continue to sin before God because God will judge their sin. Don't be deceived. Man, God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. We only love people when we tell them the truth because the truth will set them free. And even though sometimes the truth is hard to swallow, we need to recognize and understand that God's truth sets people free. See, the appeal of false teachers is, what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear? See, why do false teachers have glowing statistics to report large crowds that come and gather and listen to them? It's easy. Because they're appealing to the base sin nature of people that want to hear what they want to hear and they don't want to hear and be confronted by the truth of the word of God. The appeal to the base appetites is the old sin nature. It's like, hey, you know what? Uh, they don't teach self-denial. They teach you can do whatever you want to do. They appeal to that and they say, hey, you can have Christ and still live any way that you want. You can fill in the blank. You can pick the sin of your choice. You can, hey, look, as long as you got all those other areas right before God, he understands you're just struggling in this one area. That's okay. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. None of us are perfect. So you can just keep on doing what you want to do. That is how they appeal to that nature. Of course, they never use words like sin or judgment or accountability or responsibility or right or wrong they try, hard to, uh, they try as hard as they can to avoid putting people on a guilt trip. Certainly want anybody on a guilt trip now, do we? They tell people how good they are and how much God loves them and how much God needs them. How easy it is to get into the family of God. They tell them how to balance their life with a spiritual dimension that's missing. Hey, you've got everything else. You just need to have a little spiritual dimension added to your life. Something's missing? Try a little God. They tell everyone that everyone is okay. In fact, one of the most popular ones is, I'm okay, you're okay. And it's all one big, fuzzy, warm, happy-feeling lie. You know why I know it's a lie? Because the Word of God teaches exactly the opposite. 
God doesn't need us. We need him. I'm not okay, and neither are you. None of us are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all under the wrath of God. We are all going to be judged by God. The world has been condemned already, John 3, 18. We are under God's wrath. We are under God's judgment. See, the problem that we have is that when we look at these things and we hear these fuzzy messages, no one wants to hear about right, wrong, sin, judgment, heaven, hell. Uh, they all want to hear what they want to hear. See, if we are confronted with the truth, let me ask you a question. If you don't think you're sick, do you need to go to a physician? Obviously not. If you don't think that you're a sinner, why would you need to be forgiven? See, if you don't think you're wrong before God, why would you need to be made right before God? If you don't think you're in some sort of danger, you won't need to ask to be saved. See, the gospel is very clear, and that is this, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not okay. I'm not okay. The word of God is given to us as a tutor or teacher that leads us to Christ, realizing that I can't do what God requires of me to get into heaven. He says, if you follow the law, then you'll be made perfect before God. But he said that, and he realizes that none of us can do it. We've all lied. We've all cheated. We've all stolen in some way. We haven't honored our parents. Uh, we haven't kept the Sabbath holy. We have coveted our neighbor's goods. We have coveted our neighbor's husband or wife. We've all been guilty of these things. And because we're guilty before God, we're all on the road to hell. That's God's judgment. The world has been condemned already. We are born sinners. We sin because we're sinners. And we're all on the road to hell. That is not a very popular message. No one wants to hear it. But listen to me. It is truth. And the only way that that fate could be avoided is that we turn in agreement with God and say, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I am wrong before you. I can't do this on my own. And I believe what you say, that Jesus Christ came to save me from the consequences of my sin. Jesus Christ is the only authorized, certified, God-approved lifesaver to keep us from going to hell for eternity. And if you put your faith and trust in him, then the Bible says that you will be a child of God to those who believe in his name. Listen, you don't add Jesus Christ to your life because there's something a little bit missing. You seek him because you are a sinner who's on the road to hell. And if you don't agree with God, then you will be condemned therefore forever. It's not a feel-good, fuzzy, warm lie that I'm telling you. It's the truth of the word of God. You need to turn to him. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent from it. And you need to turn to Christ and ask him into your life. That's the truth of the gospel. And that is not what false teachers preach today. What they teach is, hey, what do you want to hear? And that's what we're going to tell you. We're going to build up our own little religion. We're going to build up our own way to reach people. We're going to fill seats. We're going to raise a ton of money. And it's going to look like this is true. But you know what? You can't judge a church by the numbers that are going. You can't judge a church by the buildings that it builds. You can't judge a church by the money that it raises. And even all the good stuff it does for the world. You judge a church by the message that it preaches, and if it's not the message that Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then it is not the church that you want to go to because it is not the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, we'll quit on this. Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to notice something because this is truth. God's truth. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Notice the contrast. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that look, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. 
saying, hey, look, don't live like non-believers, okay? Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. There's that word. They don't want to hear the truth. And they, having become callous. Have you ever met somebody that's really stubborn and dug in in their position? It doesn't matter how many ways you try to present the truth. If they are not willing to listen, they will not hear it. Why? Because of the hardness and the callousness of their heart. Only God can peel back callous hearts. It has to be an absolute... You want to talk about a miracle or a sign that God is real? The greatest sign is when a hard heart embraces the truth of the gospel and receives Jesus Christ. We don't need no other miracles. We don't need people jumping up and clapping and hearing that couldn't hear and seeing that couldn't see. Hey, you know what? The greatest miracle is a hard heart that's now not hard any longer and embraces the truth of God's love and receives Christ as their Savior. A hard heart. They haven't become callous, having given themselves over to what? There's a word. Sensuality. No standard of morality. They've just turned themselves over. Whatever makes me feel good, that's what I'm going to do. And if you're going to tell me that it's okay, I'll listen to you. And if you're not and you're going to challenge me, I don't want to hear a thing that you say. He says, and giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice so they can live every kind of impurity with greediness. Notice, contrast. But you, man and woman of God, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and you've been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. There has got to be newness of life for a person who receives Christ as their Lord and Savior. They cannot say, I prayed the prayer and continue to live the way they used to live. There has got to be a contrast that takes place. In some of us, it's a lot more obvious than others. But there is a contrast. There is an old way of life. There is now a new way of life. That in reference to your former manner of self or life, you lay aside the old self, which is corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you know the mind of Christ through the word of God. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, here's the practical part of all of it. Lay aside falsehood, now start telling the truth. If you're a liar, now commit yourself to telling the truth. Each one of you with his neighbor, for, for we are members of one another. Be angry. It's okay to be angry at righteous causes. And yet what? And don't sin in the process. We can be angry, and then we can cross the line, and we can do what's wrong before God. There's a righteous anger that's right before God. There's an anger that is called sin. We need to be aware of that. He says, um, and yet don't, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. How many of you can relate to that? And one of the things I like to talk about in weddings and wedding services in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that God's love does not hold a grudge. Basically, God's love doesn't hold a grudge, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Meaning that before I was a Christian, man, I had a long list of people I was going to get even with. But after you come to know Christ, he says, hey, you know what? You can be angry at righteous causes. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't dwell on it and don't seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can just turn it all over to me. It'll be okay. He goes on. He says, and uh, don't give the devil an opportunity, which is an opportunity to tempt you to do that which is wrong before God. Let him who steal, steals no more. But rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who is in need. Not just for yourself, but for others. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Whoa! But only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Certain industries, you know, crummy language is the primary language. Swearing, like I, like I always joked about when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, hey, you know what, swearing was our primary language, English was like our th third language. 
Um, but swear, I mean, it's like, and, and, if, and I'm in the construction industry, you go out on a construction site, there's a temptation to talk like everybody on the job site. You go in the locker room, there's talk that goes with athletes, there's a temptation to talk just like everybody else. Hey, listen, we all know what those temptations are, but the reality is this, if you're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling, then you know what, you stop talking like you're living in a getter, or that you're some sailor that's drunk on the weekend, and you start to do what's right before God, and you build people up, and you stop tearing them down. You stop talking like, you know, that your mouth is full of garbage and trash. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is edifying according to the need of moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When we look at what the Bible has to teach, we realize that, you know what, there's a lot of false teaching going on today. And we need to recognize it for what it truly is. We need to look at these methods of deception and understand them so that we don't fall victim like many people in our culture today. We need to recognize this, that God's word is truth and that God's word will set us free. And we need to hunger for the pure milk of the word so that in it we may grow in respect to our salvation. Be committed to the word of God. Next week I want to talk about, and we'll finish up this whole aspect of religious apostasy, but what I want to talk about specifically is how can you and I be prepared to deal with this apostasy that is all around us in very practical ways. And you're going to want to, you're going to, want to hear that, and you're going to take notes on that, and you're going to want to apply it to your life. Because the word of God is truth, and the word of God sets people free. Hey, listen, do yourself a huge favor, and don't run from God's truth. Because it's exactly what you need. God knows it, and he's got you here to hear it, and he wants you to embrace it. Because it's exactly what you're looking for, even though those around you will tell you to run from it. God says, never run from him, run to him. He is not the cause of your problems, but he is the solution to all of them. Father, thank you for this time again. It goes too quick. And we just pray that uh, what we've learned here today we can begin to apply in our life. We just thank you that there is truth and your word is truth and that Jesus Christ embodies all truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man can come to the Father but through him. God, help us to see that and to realize that and to understand that you love us more than we could ever understand and that we would never seek a physician unless we realize that we're sick. God, we just pray that, that uh, we will recognize that we are sick, that we're sick, that we're dying. We've got a terminal illness called sin. And until we reach out to the great physician, there is no hope. But God, we just thank you that you tell us that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the freedom that comes in it. And we look forward to what you're going to teach us in the future. And we just uh, praise you in Christ's name. Amen.